Welcome to a sermon from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. Today it's Easter Sunday, and Pastor Mike has a special message for us. May God bless you as you listen. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, this last song declares so much of what's on our heart for you today. For the gift of your son, Jesus. We just want to celebrate and honor his coming into this world, his life, his death, and especially his resurrection. Because as we're told in your word from Philippians that it is because of this that you, O Lord, have exalted our Jesus to the highest place and have given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. Today, Lord, as we are in your word, on this Easter Sunday, would you just magnify this word in our hearts so that we would come away not just knowing new information, not just so that, Lord, we can go away feeling good about ourselves or about the world or even about you, But Lord, as we go away from this place, may we go away knowing that we are in the right place with you and that we are saved and that in our salvation we have hope of a life everlasting. We pray this for our children too as they've made their way down into their space, a holy space, a space where they can learn from men and women who who are walking the faith, who are living the faith, And help them, Lord, in their time with their teachers to be able to glean from your word all that they need to and can today, but also, Lord, in a way that causes them to be able to follow you as well. Lord, bless our little children. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. He is risen. risen I never get tired of hearing that, you know. Uh, You know, he is risen is a kind of a salute, isn't it? A bit of a pledge of allegiance for us Christians. A a lot of groups have their own uh, salutes and pledges of allegiance. Uh, I was a beaver cub. I was a boy scout. And I was a uh, cub scout growing up. And I still have the, the hats and the scarves and the toggles to prove it. I've even got one manual here left that I haven't thrown away in my years gone by. But... um, that was part of who I was back then. It was me and my dad going through scouts all those years and learning uh, from a, a motto. Remember, they have all their salutes, right? The beaver cups, right? The little beaver teeth, right? And then the, the, the boy scout or the cub scouts have their little two-finger salute. The, the boy scouts, now, I was always so shamed when I was that age as a boy scout because I could never get those three fingers up there and touch those two fingers. It, it, it meant everything as a boy scout, and I couldn't do it. But uh, my hands just kind of look a little gimpy when I do that. But they have their salutes, and they have their mottos. Do you know what the boy scout motto is? Oh, come on. Be prepared. Yeah, I heard it over here. Be prepared. And, and the pledge. Now, I don't know if you can't remember the motto, which is two words. I doubt you'll remember the pledge. It goes, I promise to do my best, to love and serve God, and to do my duty to the queen, to help other people at all times, and to carry out the spirit of the scout law. And, you know, before every meeting, we'd get up and we would recite those things and then go through our badges. 
The Canadian Pledge of Allegiance has, has a pledge and a hand over heart. They, we, we recall, maybe if you've gone through it, you say, I do swear that I will, faithfully and, and bear, I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of England, her heirs and successors, so help me God. You're just going, so help me God, I remember this pledge as I'm going through. The Canadian and U.S. militaries, they have their salutes, right? And they all have their mottos in every division of the military. The, the Canadian version of the Marines is the Canadian Joint Task Force 2. I'd really like to know what happened to Joint Task Force 1. I don't know. They're gone. It doesn't exist. But their motto is facta non verba. I know it doesn't sound all that great in the Latin, but it means deeds, not words. And so every group has them. But so far, we as Christians, we don't really have a salute, do we? We don't have a salute. We, we, we do have the sign of the cross that many people do. And, but for some reason, evangelicals associate that with Catholicism. And it's really too bad because it's not. It's, it's our sign of the cross. It's our Jesus too. That's too bad because it is a good salute. But maybe we could adopt one of the salutes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Let me read it for you. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down. On their faces before the throne and worship God saying amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so when we chant he is risen. There you go. We could either maybe adopt the salute of the elders and the four living creatures by falling down on our faces. Now that might be a little inconvenient for you depending on where you're at. It might be hard getting up out of that pew in the middle there somewhere. But we could also maybe adopt the salute of the martyrs. And they wave their palm branches in the air. We could do the wave, couldn't we? Can you do the wave? Yeah, there you go. Let's try it. He is risen. He is risen. There you go. We just created a new salute and a new sign. Well, the sign of the cross is a good salute. The cross does represent, uh, does it not, our, our faith, but it's not the fullness of our faith, is it? The cross is the sign of Christ's death on the cross but his, and his power to forgive sins. It's still a good salute, and I encourage you to use it whenever you want to express uh, what the cross means to you. But without the resurrection of Jesus, without Easter, our Bibles tell us very clearly that our faith will be lacking something. Everything, in fact. He is risen. risen And as we continue in our series in the kingdom of God, if you've been with us since February, we focused on the evolving theme of the kingdom of God through the Old Testament from Genesis to King David. And then in March, we looked at the inauguration of the kingdom of God as seen in the Gospels and the life and the ministry of Jesus. In April, we started a little bit of a different theme of it, and we started to examine the, uh, the um, eschatological kingdom of God. In other words, what is yet to happen to the kingdom of God at the end of the age, otherwise known as the end times? And so, how does the resurrection of Jesus affect the end times. That will be our, our theme for today. 
To do that, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Some of you probably saw that coming. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 8 and then bump down to 12 to 28. Are you there with me? If you have a Bible, I encourage you to use it. Uh, Great thing to have on a Sunday morning uh, to be able to go over uh, and learn from God's Word. You can write notes and margins and things like that. There's sermon notes available for you. And if you don't have one, there's one in the pew. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the Apostle Paul. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Pledge of Allegiance. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Now, if you know the Apostle Paul's story, you know that he was a very religiously devout Jew who actually persecuted the followers of Jesus And until he had a, what we call the Damascus Road experience, he had an experience with the risen Jesus who appeared in front of him. Paul falls off of his horse and is blinded from his glory. It was a very traumatic conversion experience, but it converted him so well, he became the most prolific author of our New Testament. So if... if, Verse 12, So if it is preached that Christ has, has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. See what I mean? More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The end will come, he says in verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that it does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, 
Then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Most people going to church know about the resurrection of Jesus. But they may not understand what it all accomplished. We'll talk about that today. But what they may not know much about is their own resurrection. That's right. You and I will be having a resurrection. In fact, everyone will. We'll talk about that too. Paul wrote this letter, this first letter to the, current, the, to the church in Corinth as a response to their letter to him. In it, he addresses a number of the issues and challenges that the Corinthian church were facing in that large metropolitan city. Likewise, the issue of what happens to Christians after they die became a very prominent question. We kind of take it for granted, but Corinth was a very religious city. The trouble was that there were a lot of different religions, and with that comes a lot of different views about what happens to people after life. So the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, Paul gives Jesus' version of the gospel and claims that, this is our first point, number one, Jesus' resurrection authenticates the gospel of Jesus. You get that down? Jesus' resurrection authenticates the gospel of Jesus. Verse 3, and he calls this the gospel that saves. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. This is perhaps the most succinct gospel description in the Bible. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus died, was buried, was raised to life again, third day, and as Paul says, according to the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures. And everything he did was fulfilled in him. In other words, the Scriptures predicted that Christ, Israel's Messiah, would die, would be buried, would be raised three days later, and he pulled it off exactly as it was predicted. And then, Hundreds of people, Paul tells us, saw him post-resurrection, proving the reality that he was physically alive again. But obviously, the Christians in Corinth were being challenged by others, stating that people cannot and do not come back from the dead. Verse 12, so if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he points out the obvious implications. That it's the testimony of hundreds of people who have seen the risen Jesus that proves it. Who have seen the risen Jesus against what maybe you've grown up believing. That there is no resurrection. In other words, he says, testimonies of people you can still track down and ask for yourself. Verse 14 and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In an interview with the, UK, with the Guardian News out of the UK, the famous physicist and scientist and best-selling author Stephen Hawking was once asked a question, and he responded, I have lived as a, uh, as a, with the prospect of death, an early death, for the last 49 years. I'm not afraid to die, he said, but I am in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. I regard the brain as a computer that will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. You know what, even if, they're, even if you're not as smart as Stephen Hawking, there are many people who don't believe in life after death, much less a resurrection. Funny though, Hawking uh, admitted to believing in aliens and time travel and the multiverse, things that we have no proof of, but the notion of life after death, that's too much for him. I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me. The problem, I think, isn't the lack of proof. Hawking proves that faith can be reasonably placed in things that we do not yet understand, what we cannot see, and we, what we cannot prove. Paul says, we can prove the resurrection of Jesus. He is risen. He arose. His tomb was guarded by some Roman centurions, Roman military, but it's now empty. It's now empty, and there are many people who saw it, saw him, and hundreds have seen him alive since. So from those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, we too can know that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead. But best of all, there are incredible implications, spiritual implications for us because of Jesus' resurrection. This leads us to point number two. Because Jesus conquered death first, we too can conquer death. Because Jesus conquered death first, we too can conquer death. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through, the, through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is really a reference back to the Old Testament, to the old covenant ritual within Judaism known as first fruits. At harvest time, when the Israelites took up their crops, they were to bring a representative portion, sample, called the first fruits. And they were to bring it to the priests who would then offer it up to the Lord. Listen to it from Leviticus 23, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, you reap its harvest. Bring the priest a sheaf of the first grain you, ha uh, you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. There's our salute, isn't it? The first fruits indicated that this was the first portion of everything that was going to be taken up and harvest later. That's Paul's point here. Christ's resurrection from the dead was not a single isolated event. It represented the beginning of something much larger. It represented the first portion of the entire harvest that is yet to come on the earth. 
In that way, being representative, Christ's resurrection assures us that we too should expect to be raised as Christ was raised. The full harvest of which Christ was the first sign of is the harvest of all who have, as Paul describes it, fallen asleep. The New Testament frequently uses that euphemism, those who have fallen asleep, to describe the death of Christian believers. The reason was to emphasize that death was only a temporary condition. When Jesus heard that his good friend Lazarus was dead, he told his disciples in John chapter 11, verse 11, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Everyone knew he was dead. Christ himself had fallen asleep in death too, but his condition was different than that of Lazarus, as Lazarus would die again. But Christ obtained a first fruits, unique resurrection in that he gained what the New Testament calls a glorified body. The body he was raised with was his own real tangible body, but it had been transformed, glorified in fact. In other words, his body is now a supernatural, immortal body that will no longer suffer the same constraints and limitations that the natural mortal body does. Most specially, it cannot die again. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, Lazarus did not receive a glorified body yet. That would come later. Lazarus' body was clearly healed of whatever killed him, but Lazarus would die again to await his own glorified body in the future. When will that happen? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to know? Uh, Actually, so would I. But I'll tell you what the Bible says. Written written to the church in Thessalonica... Uh, the Apostle Paul says this, so turn to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, 4 or verses 13 to 18. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. There's that fallen asleep euphemism. So that you do not grieve like the rest of human, mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. All those who, in other words, all those who have died before the second coming of Christ. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So, according to the Lord's own words, all at at the second coming of Jesus, the dead in Christ will rise first, And then those who are still living will meet the Lord in the air. Now, a few end-time systems describe being caught up in the air as the rapture. Now, that word isn't in our Bibles, and so some don't like the word rapture because it's, it's a loaded term now, meaning that it's really quite isolated to the dispensational, pre-tribulation, pre-millennial end times timeline. That's a mouthful. Try saying that five times. Now, most other systems prefer to describe this being caught up together in the air as the resurrection of the church, the dead and living saints of God. 
And that's what it is. It's the resurrection. Whether you like the word rapture or not, this, ra- this rapture is the resurrection that happens at the second coming of Christ. Paul just announced that that's what was going to happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. Whether you like the word or not doesn't matter. It's, now it's just a matter of figuring out when this, rap- this resurrection takes place. The question is whether or not the rapture is a separate and distinct event from the second coming of Christ. Now that would make Jesus' return a two-stage return if it was. And Jesus coming once before the tribulation and then a second time after the tribulation is how some propose it. Or does it occur simultaneously as only one event when Christ returns to earth at the end of the tribulation catches up his church, and then returns back to earth to reign forever. Remember, there's some very smart, prominent, godly people who hold different positions on the rapture and the second coming of Christ, and that's okay. We are allowed to. We just need to all confess that Jesus is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. All these other things, these are just an amalgamation of everybody's thoughts on the topics And who's right? We don't know. We'll find out in the end. Now, I personally think it's possible, sorry, it's impossible to piece together a specific timeline from the Bible. There's just too much overlap and mystery there. And I think God did that on purpose in in writing, in giving us the Bible. I think God purposefully obscured the timeline so that we won't become a bunch of date setters. And there have been date setters in the history of the church. But instead, we will be grateful that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And with that, we will gain a sense of urgency like we're supposed to, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth like he commanded us to, because his return is coming soon. Time is running out for the unbeliever, and our time to get the gospel to them is running out then too. It's time for us to get into the harvest ASAP. Paul does, though, give us a bit of a general timeline. This is our third point. All die, but only those who belong to Christ will be raised to life. All die, but only those who belong to Christ will be raised. Verse 22 of chapter 15. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, then those who belong to him. Maybe in your Bibles, just underline in his own turn. Adam, as in Adam and Eve, is described here as representative of all humanity. And in that, because we are of the same nature as Adam, we are also under the same judgment as Adam. After he sinned, We continued to sin, didn't we? Because we are in the same nature as Adam, and therefore we are destined to the same judgment as Adam, namely physical and spiritual death. Our shared judgment was that we too became cut off from the life of God, and therefore we needed a Savior. And so from Adam on, sin reigned over the entire human race. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, he says in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in, and in this way death became, came to all people because all sinned. And then he says in verse 17, For if by the trespass of one man 
Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get back to our chapter here now. It says in verse 22, For for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, those two alls are conditional. If we remain in Adam, we will all die. But if we become in Christ, all who are in Christ will be made alive. Paul confirms this saying in verse 23, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So to be in Christ means to belong to Christ, right? Likewise, being in Adam means belonging to Adam. So how do you, do, how do you begin to belong to Christ? Well, this is a lordship issue. Is Jesus Lord and King of your life? How do you know? Well, actually, if he is, you know. There's no question in your mind about it. Romans 10, verses 9 to 11. If we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So this really is our pledge of allegiance, isn't it? And by declaring Jesus Lord of our life, what we're doing is we're essentially making a transfer of kingdoms. We're transferring out of the kingdom of Adam and death to the kingdom of Christ and life. And that makes sense. But why is the resurrection of Jesus a necessary part of that pledge? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why is that last part necessary? Well, because it's easy to believe that Jesus died, isn't it? I mean, everybody dies, whether you're crucified on a cross or you die of natural causes. Everyone dies. That's not hard to believe. But Jesus separates and he distinguishes himself from all others by being the only one worthy of our devotion by rising from the dead, by his resurrection. Because he alone rose from that grave. Muhammad is dead. The Buddha is dead. Uh, Guru Granth Sahib is dead. Tao, Confucius are dead. All the avatars and holy men of Hinduism and every other polytheistic faith is dead. Only Jesus is alive forevermore by resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that he alone is Lord of life and death. He alone then is worthy of our devotion and our loyalty. To deny him, to reject him, in favor of other gods or prophets or gurus will mean that one day you will be swallowed up in death. But being devoted and loyal to Jesus alone means that you'll be swallowed up in life, eternal life. There can be no mixing of lords because there is no other option, Jesus or nothing at all. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah long time ago. Death has been swallowed up in victory, he says. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, friends, I ask you today, I ask you, hand over heart, 
Before we go any further, have you made this pledge to Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? And have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you have, then you are in Christ and you belong to Christ and it means you now have eternal life forever. And if you are alive when the second coming happens, your current body will be glorified on the way up to meet the Lord in the air. Hallelujah. And if you are already dead, if you've fallen asleep in Christ, then your spirit will, uh, will ascend when Christ descends and he will meet you in the air and you will join with your resurrected body and then you will meet him in the air as well. So friend, if you haven't made the pledge of allegiance, if you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you can't believe the the resurrection, then friend, the Bible says that you are still in Adam. And therefore, you're still dead in your sins and you're still subject to the judgment of God. If you want to belong to Christ, just where you are right now, tell him that. Say, Jesus, I believe that you alone are the resurrection and the life. And I declare you, Lord, of my life. You are my king. And friend, if you do that today, even right where you are, if you make that pledge, then you are saved and God has infused within you his eternal life and now you are guaranteed life at the end of this life. You're guaranteed eternal life in glory. Now, I'd love it if, if you made that pledge, if you'd come to the pew after the service. We always have this pew open for prayer, for whatever you need. And if you have made that, that pledge today, I would love to hear it from you and share in your joy together. Now, the Apostle Paul has one more thing to tell us today. Number four, the end will come when, Christ, when King Jesus is Lord over all. The end will come when King Jesus is Lord over all. Verse 23 but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, all who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's an interesting phrase there, but each in his own turn. Most other translations render it uh, but every man in his own order, as close to the Greek, uh, one, uh, one's own proper order. So there is clear order of events here by Paul. You got to take your turn, right? Sounds like your mother, right? Got to take your turn. First Christ rose. He is the first fruits. And then, and that's a past event, right? And, and he has already been raised. Christ has risen. Then, as his second coming comes, those who belong to Christ will rise next. So if you think of it this way, the second coming of Jesus is the deadline. It's the deadline. It's the finish line. Paul says when he comes, that's when the end comes. And that end does not just include the resurrection of the elect or the church. If you go all the way back into Daniel in the Old Testament, Chapter 12, the prophet Daniel tells us some, something extra. He says in verse 1, There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Sounds like Matthew 24 from last week, right? Tribulation. But at that time, your people, 
everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. He seems to suggest, not seems, he does suggest that those who sleep, there's that euphemism again, will wake in resurrection. But notice that Daniel describes a dual resurrection, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame and contempt. Jesus says the same thing as Daniel. John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29, For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come out. Those who have done what is right will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Acts 24, the Apostle Paul also says to a group of of, uh, Jewish leaders and elders, Verse 14, I believe everything in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope of God as these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So at his second coming, there is a resurrection of those who are in Christ and a resurrection of those who reject Christ and are still in Adam. At that point... At the point of his return, the bodies of all Christians will be resurrected and reunited with their spirits like Jesus' resurrection. These bodies will be like their former bodies, but will be glorified bodies, no longer subject to sin, suffering, and death. No more. The wicked, however, are those who reject Christ as their resurrected Lord, will be raised, but their resurrection will be to condemnation. I'll talk more about that next week. The point is, friends, a time is coming and coming soon where it will be impossible to gain victory, the victory that Jesus offers you today if you don't already have it. If you are in Christ, then hallelujah, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Easter is your holy day. It's your victory, isn't it? His resurrection is your keys to the kingdom because Jesus has conquered the grave and so shall we. He is risen. And if Jesus is not your Savior yet, if He is not your Lord yet, I invite you, I plead with you to do that today before you leave. And you online, make sure you do that before you turn off your TV. I invite you to come to the front after if that's something that you do and just let me know. Jesus said that because he lives, we will live also. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and we will rise when he comes. We will rise indeed. He is risen. Let's give that salute. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, your word is packed with triumph and victory, and joy of eternal life, and the promise of life in Christ forever. But Lord, your word is also packed with warning. It's packed with warning for those of us who do not yet confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. But Lord, it's also packed with warning for us Christians to not get preoccupied and busy with 
timelines and trivial things, but instead, Lord, to get active in the kingdom of God and to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, to do whatever we can with the limited amount of time that we have so that we can speed the return of Jesus. To not do that, to not do that would be denying Christ all the same. We pray, O oh God, that today on this Resurrection Sunday, that life eternal would come to so many people. And those of us who already have it, Lord, we will rise up from where we are and we will live the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. And Lord, let us be living testaments of the risen, living Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. You can find out more information about Lawson Heights Alliance Church and our ministries by visiting lawsonchurch.com.